Tokyo. 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 The capital of Imperial Japan and the target of today's episode. Bombs are wheeled up to a B-29 super fortress on Saipan Island. It is only the beginning, now in November 1944, as these mighty bombers prepare for the first raid on Tokyo in two and a half years. Crews of the 21st Bomber Command are briefed for the job, a 1,500-mile flight that will make history. General Emmett O'Donnell, mission leader, checks final details with General Haywood Hansel, commander of the Saipan-based superforts, and with Major Moran, his companion in the lead plane, Dauntless Dottie. Ready? Take off. Hansel's men didn't know it then, but they were about to change the course of history, as this raid would mark the beginning of a bombing campaign that would kill over half a million Japanese, and would result in the end of the war in the Pacific, and the end of Imperial Japan aboard the USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay on September 2nd, 1945. Welcome to the Maze Inferno on Radio Free Hillsdale. This is a six-part documentary series covering the final months of World War II in the Pacific. Today, we look at the development of the B-29 Superfortress, the first B-29 raid on Japan, and the man who had come to lead them, Curtis Emerson LeMay. The B-29 was the culmination of 20 years of strategic thinking, a chain of ideas sparked by one of the most tragic events in human history. The stalemate of the First World War, particularly on the Western and Italian fronts, caused all of the warring powers to rapidly seek new technologies to break the deadlock. Along with tanks, flamethrowers, and poison gas, one new area of innovation was air power. Only a decade after the Wright brothers' famed flight at Kitty Hawk, air power had become a pivotal factor in how war was waged. Airplanes provided reconnaissance, protection from enemy aircraft, and importantly, a new method of bringing the war behind enemy lines. The first bombers, as they would become known, were simply fighters or reconnaissance aircraft where the pilot had been given grenades or contact-fused shells. The pilots would fly over an enemy target and toss the grenades or shells out of his airplane, hoping they would hit the target. These initial attempts were soon cancelled, however, as both sides looked for better alternatives. The three main factors to war planners trying to design a bomber were how many bombs could be carried, how far the aircraft could travel and still be able to return, and how accurate the bombing was. In 1915, the Germans began using large helium balloon airships called Zeppelins to bomb the UK. The Zeppelins, because they relied on helium to stay aloft, could travel much farther using their engines only for lateral movement. They could also carry large loads of bombs compared to their biplane counterparts. The Zeppelin Blitz, as it became known, lasted for two years, killing around 700 and wounding over 2,000 in the first significant attack on British soil since the Norman Conquest of 1066. However, the Zeppelins were missing a crucial and neglected fourth factor. They were slow, sluggish, and unarmed, and soon British fighters with incendiary rounds could make quick work of the bombers. By 1917, the Germans had instead switched to biplane bombers, attaching contact-fused bombs to the underside of the wings of larger craft. These bombers were much more maneuverable and accurate, and had machine guns to defend themselves, but they had less range and could carry fewer bombs. These two developments marked a significant change in the application of air power. Now, 
Instead of directly supporting the armies by bombing tactical targets or combating enemy aircraft, bombers could target factories, railroads, bridges, dams, roads, and other strategic targets behind enemy lines in an effort to destroy the enemy's ability to supply and equip his army. If this could be done successfully, many airmen argued, it would eliminate the need for the deadly stalemate and save the lives of millions. The war ended well before the appropriate technology could be developed to achieve this, but it was this idea that would influence military aircraft design for the next two decades. By the mid-1930s, the air forces of the world were designing and building bombers that could go higher, faster, and farther than any before. They could carry tenfold more bombs and were armed with machine guns and defensive turrets or windows which could help drive off attackers. While the air forces of Germany and Britain had bombers like the Heinkel 111 and the Vickers Wellington, the US, on the other hand, was falling behind in the technological race. American military spending in the 1930s was infinitesimal, and the US Army Air Corps, like all the other branches of the military, was struggling for funds. What money they did have went almost entirely to maintaining current aircraft and to designing and building new fighter aircraft. Very little attention was paid to the potential of a bomber force. The advocates for a bomber force in the United States struck a lucky break in 1934, though, when the Air Corps greenlighted a new bomber design. They had sent specifications to all the major U.S. aircraft manufacturers, and Boeing won the design contest and was awarded money to produce a prototype. The design was designated the XB-17, the X standing for experimental, the B standing for bomber, and the 17 meaning it was the 17th bomber design submitted to the Air Corps. The YB-17, the designation having changed since Y stands for prototype, made its first test flight in 1935, and later that year the Air Corps gave Boeing a contract to build the bombers. Production began in 1936, and when the first B-17, the Y being removed since it was now a production model, was revealed to the public, one reporter exclaimed, My God! That thing's a flying fortress! The name stuck, and the B-17 Flying Fortress became the Air Corps' newest strategic bomber, and it was a beauty. It could fly higher, faster, and farther than any other bomber in production at the time. It could carry more bombs, 8,000 pounds of them, and designers claimed that it could hit a pickle jar from 10,000 feet up with them. What made it the Flying Fortress, though, was not its bomb load. It was its defenses. The B-17 was bristling with 10 Browning 50 caliber machine guns. The guns were placed in such a way that every angle around the plane was covered by at least two guns. The idea was that, since it could fly much farther than any fighter, it needed to be able to protect itself and the ideal defense for the bombers would be a group of them flying together, combining their firepower to take down enemy attackers. Years went by and the B-17 remained the Air Corps' frontline bomber. However, by 1939, with the clouds of war gathering over Europe, Germany and Britain had upgraded their arsenals, and the European fighters were soon outpacing the B-17's proposed defense. Day by day, the B-17 was growing obsolete, and Hap Arnold, made Air Corps Chief of Staff in 1938, knew it. Arnold turned a consolidated aircraft company in their new Model 32 strategic bomber. It was similar to the B-17, but had increased range and bomb load. Arnold received funding from Washington to turn the Model 32 into reality, and the project would culminate in the creation of the B-24 bomber in 1939. However, Arnold realized that this was only a stopgap solution. The B-24 was only marginally better than the B-17, and it too would soon be outclassed. Arnold, desperate to prove to the government and to the world, that bombers could truly win wars, wanted to build an even bigger plane. He organized a commission of experts led by Brigadier General Walter Kilner to consider what the Air Corps, now redesignated the Army Air Forces, needed in a new bomber. The commission produced the Kilner Report, which detailed the need for a bomber with an entirely new designation. Previously, the B-17 and new B-24 and their predecessors had been called heavy bombers. The Kilner Report proposed the Army Air Forces design a new, very heavy bomber. The report called for a bomber with a range in excess of 2,500 miles, capable of carrying 20,000 pounds of bombs, and a top speed of around 400 miles per hour. It also had to be even more heavily defended than the B-17, and on top of everything else, it had to be able to fly at altitudes of over 30,000 feet. When Arnold submitted these specifications to America's aircraft companies, he was not just asking for a bomber, he was asking for a super bomber. So began the greatest design competition in American aviation history. September 1st, 1939 marked the beginning of what would become the deadliest war in human history, and in the months that followed, the German Luftwaffe would prove to the world the immense value of air power.
Junkers, Ju-87, Stuka dive bombers wreaked havoc on Allied troop formations, destroying tanks, infantry, convoys of trucks, trains, and most importantly, morale. German fighters swept over the skies of France and Poland, clearing the way for the Stukas and the Heinkel 111s behind to clobber the Allies. This effective demonstration of the destructive capability of air power convinced the world of the necessity of winning control of the air. America began preparing itself for war. With Europe in flames, President Roosevelt was able to siphon off more money to spend on military production, ostensibly to support Britain and France in their fight against Germany, but in reality, to also build up strength for America's inevitable entry into the conflict. Unlike the B-17 project, the Army greenlit both Consolidated and Boeing's designs for the new Superbomber, and provided both with lots of money with which to design and build a prototype to meet the specifications. It soon became apparent, however, that with Consolidated focusing its small manufacturing base almost entirely on building B-24s, the more established Boeing would surge far ahead in the race. The Boeing XB-29 was presented to the Army in 1941. The Army was impressed with the design and awarded Boeing a contract to build 14 prototypes. By December 1941, the prototypes were nearing completion when another cataclysmic event forced Boeing to speed up their timeline even further. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, which brought America into World War II, put America's aviation industry into full gear. Hap Arnold, eager to get the super bomber in production, awarded Boeing a contract to build 500 B-29s, even before the first prototype had been finished, with the stipulation that the production would only begin after the initial testing phase was complete. Boeing used this money to build two entirely new factories in Renton, Washington, their hometown, and another new plant in Wichita, Kansas. Boeing also agreed, at Hap Arnold's suggestion, to lease the design to Bell Aircraft Company, who had produced B-29s out of a new plant in Marietta, Georgia, and Martin Aircraft Company, who had built a new factory in Omaha, Nebraska. All of these plans were agreed to, paid for, and begun, even before the first test flight of a YB-29. By mid-1942, the first prototype was complete, and began undergoing on-ground testing. The B-29 project was already the fastest aircraft development program in history, going from paper to prototype in under two years. By comparison, most aircraft designs both today and at the time underwent years of development on paper before any prototypes began assembly. The prototype completed the ground tests and made its first flight on September 21st, 1942. Let's talk for a moment about the design itself before continuing on. In order to meet the requirements, Boeing's design team had to overcome many major hurdles. First was weight. A fully loaded B-29 would weigh over 130,000 pounds on takeoff. How on earth could something that heavy fly, let alone climb to over 30,000 feet and fly at over 300 miles per hour? The answer was twofold, power and aerodynamics. Boeing chose to equip the bomber with four turbo-supercharged Curtis Wright R3350 engines each outputting 2,200 horsepower. That's double the power of the B-17's engines, making the B-29 the most powerful aircraft ever designed at the time. The powerful engines would more than allow the B-29 to go over 300 miles per hour in level flight and increase performance at high altitude. The engines were so powerful and complicated that Boeing designed a new crew station for the plane, that of the flight engineer. The flight engineer's sole purpose was to monitor the engines and fuel supplies calculate the plane's range based on fuel usage, and manage the throttle. That's right, on B-29s, even though they had a throttle just in case of an emergency, the flight engineer, not the pilot, was in charge of the throttle. As for aerodynamics, Boeing engineers developed a new type of wing design, which, incorporating a slight sweep in the wings, as well as a redesign of the standard shape of the wings, almost doubled the lift of the plane. Even so, the B-29, because of its immense weight, would be notoriously difficult to get airborne, something many crews would find out the hard way. As for altitude, on top of the power and lift, Boeing had to take into consideration the accommodations of the crew. At 30,000 feet, the average air temperature is around negative 40 degrees, which is conveniently the same in both Fahrenheit and Celsius scales, and the air had too little oxygen in it to breathe. 
Crews in Europe flying B-17s at 25,000 feet wore clothes equivalent to mountain climbers to avoid frostbite, as well as oxygen masks in order to breathe, and Boeing realized this was a severe hindrance to effectiveness. Boeing decided to try something entirely new. The B-29 would be the world's first pressurized aircraft. A pressurized interior would allow for the plane to be heated and cooled to the crew's desired temperature, allowing the crew to ditch the heavy coats, hats, and scarves, and pants in favor of the regular flight suit and oxygen masks intercom combo for a headset and microphone. In order to make the plane pressurizable, Boeing split the aircraft into three compartments. The cockpit, where the pilot, co-pilot, bombardier, navigator, flight engineer, and radio operator were stationed, the gunner's compartment, where the left and right waist gunners, as well as the central fire control gunner, were stationed, and finally, the tail gunner's compartment in the rear of the plane, where the tail gunner was stationed. The cockpit and main gunner's compartments were separated from each other by the bomb bay, but a 40-foot-long tube allowed crewmen to move from one section into the other. The tail gunner's compartment, however, had no such luxury, and when the plane was pressurized, the tail gunner was separated from the rest of the crew until the plane was able to depressurize. That brings us to the defenses. Because the plane had to be pressurized, the guns were all in remote-controlled turrets in order to avoid breaking the seal with the barrel of a Browning 50 caliber machine gun, except for the tail gun, which was manhandled by the tail gunner directly, but through an extension that left the entirety of the firing mechanism outside the pressure seal. The gunners in the aft compartment, and the bombardier in the cockpit, all had remote-control gun sights connected to a targeting computer placed in the gunner's compartment. In order to lock onto a target, gunners placed a circular ring in their sight on an enemy plane, and decreased or increased the size until the wingtips of the enemy were each touching the edge of the circle. The computer would then calculate for range, speed, and angle, and automatically aim the guns with enough lead to hit the target. The targeting computer, while comically simple by today's standards, was the first of its kind, and light years ahead of its time. Because of the size of the sights, they were placed in large plexiglass blisters that protruded from the plane's fuselage that allowed the gunners to see much more of the sky around them than if they had only a regular window. There were two blisters, one on each side of the fuselage in the gunner's compartment for the waste gunners, plus an additional one on top of the fuselage for the central fire control gunner. The central fire control gunner sat in a raised swivel chair called the barber's chair so he could have his head in the blister. This site was placed on a track so it could rotate 360 degrees around the blister on top of the normal tilting and turning the waste gunners could do with their sights. It was all these capabilities and more that inspired Boeing's name choice for the new plane, the Super Fortress. The first few test flights went off as planned. After each flight, the assortment of Boeing engineers both on board the plane and on the ground spotted problems in the design and went about making the appropriate changes. The whole project was top secret, however, so everyone involved kept quiet about the new plane flying in the skies over Seattle. Any locals who spotted the new plane and told newspapers received prompt visits from J. Edgar Hoover's FBI men who assured them, and the newspapers, that the rumors were false and that it was in fact simply a misidentified B-17 that had been seen instead. For months, the flights and cover-up went quite smoothly, until one fateful day, disaster befell the Superfortress. February 18th, 1943. The sky was foggy and overcast around Boeing Field in Seattle. Boeing test pilot Eddie Allen, widely regarded as the best test pilot in the world at the time, made himself comfy in the XB-29's cockpit. Allen was at home in the plane, and he was the man with the most flight hours in a B-29 to date. It was he who piloted the plane on its maiden voyage a few months earlier. No one knew the B-29 like he did. While the weather was not ideal, Allen was determined to find out the answer to the problem on everyone's minds. The engines. The Wright Cyclone turbo-supercharged engines were misbehaving. On one flight, two engines had failed, forcing an emergency landing. On another, an engine caught fire and could not be extinguished by the B-29's built-in fire extinguisher, forcing another dicey emergency landing, and a frantic dousing of the flaming engine on the ground. On multiple other flights, engines had either caught fire or stopped working mid-flight. Even the day prior, February 17th, an engine fire forced an emergency landing. Allen was determined to find the cause. He strapped himself into the pilot's seat, and went through his checklist before getting the all-clear to take off with his crew of test pilots and Boeing engineers. Allen gunned the engines, the plane lurched forward, engines screaming, headed down the runway. In B-29 takeoff, seconds feel like minutes, and minutes like hours. But, as the plane hopped, skipped, and jumped down the runway, the violent shaking gave way to smooth air and the soothing rush of wind over the airframe. Eddie Allen was airborne once again. The plane climbed to 5,000 feet above downtown Seattle as Allen and the crew watched with intensity the four Cyclone engines, looking for any hints of the underlying problems within. Then, only four minutes into the flight, the number one engine, the outboard engine on the left wing, caught fire. Allen and his crew went to work, 
They cut all fuel to the engine to starve the fire of fuel, closed the intakes to starve the fire of air, and began using the CO2 fire extinguisher to put out the flames. Allen decided to make an emergency landing and turned back towards Boeing Field. He let the tower know of his situation. Fire in number one engine, coming in. Had fire in engine and used CO2 bottle and think we have it under control. The tower responded, Tell us if at any time you think you need fire equipment. With the fire mostly under control, the B-29 continued back towards Boeing Field, flying directly over downtown Seattle with a smoking engine. Three minutes later, Allen came back on the intercom. Renton, 2400 feet and descending. Request immediate landing clearance. Number one engine was on fire. Propeller feathered and trouble not serious. Order crash equipment to stand by. The tower at Boeing Field did as Allen requested and gave the XB-29 immediate landing clearance. Meanwhile, a host of fire trucks and paramedics sallied out from the garages around the field, ready to put out the fire on the ground and rescue the men if needed. Three minutes passed by as the B-29 crawled back towards the airfield, but something had gone wrong. We're over the Lake Washington Bridge, 2,500 feet. Correction, 1,500 feet. Then in the background, the controller could hear one of the men on the plane scream. Alan, better get this thing down in a hurry. The wing spar is burning badly. A burned out engine was one thing, but now the fire had spread into the wing itself and was threatening cutting the wing clean off. Losing altitude quickly, with a wing on fire, and only a mile away from Boeing Field, Alan made one last desperate attempt to get the flaming superfortress back to the runway. The plane was now only 1,200 feet over downtown Seattle with a wing on fire. People on the ground could plainly see the disaster unfolding above, at the same time shocked to see a burning airplane, and also one they'd never seen before. Alan wrestled with the controls to try and keep the plane airborne, but by now the flames had jumped from the wing and were now lapping against the fuselage, filling the cockpit with smoke and flame. One of the men bailed out, but the plane was already too low for his chute to open. Instead, he struck a power line and was killed on impact, in the process blacking out all of southern Seattle. Another jumped from the burning plane, but he too slammed into the ground before his chute could open. As for the rest of them on board, they followed the plane for another 15 seconds before it slammed into the fourth floor of the fry meatpacking plant killing everyone on board instantly. Firefighters rushed to the scene to put out the raging fire, followed quickly by a host of Boeing personnel and, of course, FBI agents and military police. Luckily for the workers at the plant, most had been on lunch break at the time and few were now on the burning fourth and fifth floors. But for the government, the factory workers were not their main concern. Rather, it was the flurry of phone calls reporting a burning, never-before-seen plane over Seattle, before then hearing a loud explosion and losing power. Seattle was driven into a frenzy. Was it a Japanese attack? Was it a prototype plane? What happened? The FBI and military, along with Boeing, assured the public that it was simply an unfortunate accident involving a B-17, and not some kind of Japanese attack or government cover-up. Of course, in reality, it was a cover-up, and now they were in the unfortunate situation of having one of only two prototypes of their war-winning bomber being a burning wreck inside the meatpacking plant. It was the worst accident in American aviation history at the time, and it was all top secret. So secret, in fact, that the pictures of the crash site are kept under lock and key in Boeing's headquarters even today, in 2021. It was a disaster on the scale of Apollo 1, or Challenger. But, unlike what almost happened to the space shuttle project after Challenger, abandoning the B-29 project was not an option. For Boeing and their remaining test pilots, work on the B-29 was still full speed ahead. A couple months of testing later and Boeing had finally finalized the design. Though the engines had still remained a source of constant stress and anxiety and would plague planes and crews for the remainder of the war. With the design finalized, the first YB-29s were built and handed over to the Army for testing. By mid-1943, the Army was happy with the design, provided that Boeing be ready to tweak the design or upgrade existing planes should the Army require it. The B-29 Superfortress was now official, and at that moment set the world record for the fastest paper-to-production time in aircraft manufacturing history. The whole process had taken less than three years. Now all it was left to do was build them and send them to war. Production began in earnest in 1943 at Boeing's Wichita plant. 75 B-29s had already been assembled there at that point, but out of the 75, only 16 were airworthy, and the whole lot were deemed by the Army inspectors unfit for combat. Hap Arnold ordered Boeing to fix the existing B-29s and get to work speeding up the production of new ones. Boeing, however, had a major problem on its hands. The B-29s that had been produced were using the same design as the B-29 which Eddie Allen had been killed flying in a year earlier. The problems with the engines were not the only ones, though, as the glass used in the cockpit was distorting the view of pilots and needed to be replaced. The pressure seals on many of the planes did not hold and prevented cabin pressurization, and the over 10,000 miles of wiring inside each B-29 had to be ripped out and replaced because they had been poorly wired. 
Months passed by, and only rarely did a new B-29 roll off the assembly line. The progress on refitting the existing bombers was at a crawl. By January 1944, Hap Arnold had had enough, and personally visited the Wichita plant to see the situation for himself. He was shocked to find the assembly line workers poorly trained, managed, and equipped. Many of the B-29s had been built entirely by hand, and Arnold realized that this was part of the problem. Arnold told Boeing, he wanted 175 B-29s ready for service by March, only two months away. To reinforce his point, he walked down the assembly line, found number 175, and signed his name on it, saying, This is the plane I want. I want it before the 1st of March. This was a tall task, and Boeing tried their best to meet the challenge, but in the end it proved insurmountable for Boeing's team. March 1st came and went, and still no B-29s were ready for service. When Arnold heard the news, he finally reached his limit, and ordered 1,200 Army aircraft technicians to take over the plant and manage the production. Arnold lit a fire under them to get the job done quick, and the technicians began working at a feverish pace. In what became known as the Battle of Kansas, technicians worked both inside the plant on the assembly lines and outside doing refits in often sub-zero temperatures, building and refitting B-29s that Arnold hoped would win the war. In five weeks, the technicians had done what Boeing had failed to do in six months, and delivered to the Army Air Force's 175 combat-ready B-29s. The Army had its bombers. Now, they needed someone to lead them. Curtis Emerson LeMay was born on November 15, 1906, in the town of Columbus, Ohio. When Curtis was only four years old, he was startled by an unfamiliar sound. He looked up toward where the noise was coming from and saw, to his amazement, a machine defying physics and flying above him. He stared at the man in it as he flew by. The man saw Curtis and waved back at him. Curtis dropped his rake, abandoned his chores, and sprinted out of the yard and after the plane. He chased it through the city, over streets, over bridges, and over fields, before finally losing sight of the plane. He thought he had only been chasing the thing for minutes but as he walked back home, it took him hours, not minutes, to get back. Though LeMay could not catch this plane, a Wright Model B flyer doing a stunt for a local store, he would dedicate his life to flight. His father struggled to find a job, and in his earlier years, the LeMay family moved all over the United States looking for work. Finally, when Curtis was around middle school age, the LeMays settled back down in Columbus, Ohio. LeMay was determined to fly and excelled in his studies at school, graduating from Columbus's South High School, which still operates today, near the top of his class in 1925. At that time, there were only two ways to fly. Either become a civilian pilot with an airline, which at the time was dominated by World War I veterans and difficult for newcomers to do, or join the Army Air Corps. LeMay decided to try joining the Army Air Corps, but soon realized that it was no easy task. In fact, in the 1920s, it was harder to be accepted into the Air Corps than it was to go to Harvard. LeMay, Ever practical studied how to increase his chances and found that men with college degrees and National Guard experience had much higher success rates. He enrolled at the Ohio State University and while there joined the Ohio National Guard. LeMay had been studying there for two years when he finally shot his shot and applied for the Air Corps. Miraculously, he got in and was due to start flight training as part of the November class of 1928. LeMay made his way through training, trying his best not to fail at all in order to be one of the two cadets to graduate. However, while he excelled in his coursework that they did on the ground, flying presented LeMay with a challenge beyond any he had yet faced. He struggled with the controls and multiple times nearly crashed. Yet, by the end of the training course, he had somehow managed to survive the cut and stood with his fellow cadet in front of the brass to receive their wings. Curtis passed advanced flight training and then finished his degree at Ohio State, graduating in 1932. While there, LeMay met Helen Maitland, who in 1934 would become Helen LeMay upon their wedding. After graduating from Ohio State, LeMay began his career in earnest, volunteering to join the bomber force as a navigator. LeMay went to navigator school in Langley, Virginia, where his talents and study were made apparent. LeMay spent the 1930s slowly working his way up the ranks of the peacetime and isolationist Air Corps, and by 1941 had attained the rank of Major. Then, on December 7th of that year, his life was flipped upside down. Almost as soon as he had received word of the attack, he was ordered to report to a base in Oregon. Soon after he got there, though, he was ordered to fly to Wendover Field, Utah, which still exists with many of its World War II buildings intact today, to train and make ready for war, the newly created 306th Bomb Group. LeMay had gone from commanding a single plane to commanding 35 planes overnight. Or so he thought. When he got there, his was the only B-17 at Wendover. He asked where the rest were, and he was told the simple truth. They hadn't been built yet. LeMay had to find a way to train 35 crews with only one B-17. The result was that LeMay and his co-pilot, 
the only two trained pilots at Wendover were flying all day trying to give as many pilots as possible flying time on the B-17. The May regularly pulled 18-hour workdays, only stopping to sleep. Finally, in early 1942, the 306th received its planes and after only a few days of extra training, began their journey to England as part of the newly created 8th Air Force. The flight across the Atlantic doubled most of the pilots' flight hours, but LeMay knew they needed more training. Upon arrival at RAF Underwood, the 306th began doing training flights almost every day, practicing formation flying in particular. It takes immense skill for modern groups like the Thunderbirds or Blue Angels to fly in formation. Imagine the skill it took to fly in formation with dozens of massive, lumbering B-17s. Somehow, LeMay and his staff managed to take pilots with almost no flying experience and train them to fly in tight formations in only a few weeks, no small task. His superiors in the 8th Air Force complained that he used more fuel than any other group in England, but when they saw his well-kept formations, they stopped complaining. In July of 1942, LeMay and the 8th Air Force went into action over the skies of Europe for the first time, making daylight precision bombing raids against targets in occupied France. LeMay's group had the best results and least losses of any group in Europe, but even the 306th, like the rest of the 8th Air Force, was getting ravaged by German flak and the formidable Luftwaffe. LeMay, along with a number of other leaders, worked hard trying to find a solution, and LeMay found one in the creation of the Combat Box. The Combat Box dictated that formations of planes fly in three groups, one high, one low, and one lead. The bombers in the three groups were positioned in such a way that every angle around the group from which the enemy fighters could approach was covered by dozens of 50 caliber machine guns. The combat box, though, was an even more complicated formation than what had been used before, and it took hours of additional training before LeMay's group could fly in the box. The combat box dramatically improved the defenses of the unescorted B-17s, but even so, the daylight raids took their toll on the 8th Air Force. By 1943, it was a proven fact that the 8th Air Force had the worst loss rates of any unit in the American military. Few crews survived their 25-mission combat tours in the same plane, let alone with the same crew, as hundreds of aircrew were killed or wounded on every mission. The 8th was desperate to find commanders that limited losses while also increasing effectiveness, and soon, LeMay was plucked from his command of the 306th and promoted to command the 3rd Air Division, being promoted to Brigadier General in the process. While with the 306th, LeMay had piloted the lead plane on almost every mission in order to personally observe and experience the problems faced by his crews, and this remained the case even with the new star on his shoulder. He personally led the infamous and deadly Schweinfurt-Regensburg raid, the deadliest of the war for the 8th Air Force. However, for every bomber shot down, two more took its place, as thousands of B-17s rolled off the production lines in the US and flew to England to join the 8th in their bombing campaign against Germany. By early 1944, the 8th Air Force had won the Battle of Attrition in the skies over Europe, and was in the middle of bombing hundreds of targets in France in preparation for D-Day. LeMay was at the forefront of this campaign until, in June of 1944, only a few days after D-Day, he received orders to fly back to Washington. After a brief reunion with his family, he was taken to the recently finished Pentagon to meet with senior Air Force staff. He was promoted to Major General on the spot, given a second star, and given command of the new 20th Bomber Command. His task? Use the 175 newly produced B-29s to take the war directly to Japan. LeMay then flew to Wichita, Kansas, where he met with his crews and began the 11,000-mile journey to India via the Atlantic Ocean and North Africa, where newly constructed bases in Bengal and China put the B-29 within striking distance of all of mainland Asia, and even within range of southern Japan. The 20th Bomber Command was part of a new organization, the 20th Air Force. The 20th Air Force had been created specifically by Hap Arnold for the B-29s. Arnold exercised direct control over it from Washington in order to prevent regional commanders from bossing LeMay and the B-29s around, trying to commandeer them for their own use. The B-29s had been designed to bomb strategic targets, not tactical ones, and Hap Arnold wasn't taking any chances. When the B-29s arrived in India, however, they encountered a whole new set of previously unknown challenges. The harsh summer heat made the already overheating-prone engines even more susceptible to overheating, exacerbating engine troubles. Boeing engineers had to accompany the bombers wherever they went in order to fashion spare parts and maintain the bomber fleet. 
What's more, in order to bomb Japan, the B-29s had to fly out of the bases in Chengdu, China, and between Bengal and Chengdu stood the massive Himalaya Mountains, known by airmen as the Hump. The skies above the Himalayas are a dangerous space, and even today, most air traffic avoids flying over them. Flying over them for one round trip at a time may seem fine, but the B-29s had to fly to Chengdu and back twice before flying there for the actual mission. Why? Japan had cut the only land supply route to China early on in the war, meaning all of the fuel and bombs for each mission against Japan Japan had to be flown into China by the B-29s. The first two trips to Chengdu and back were to deliver fuel and then to deliver bombs. Only on the third trip over the mountains would the B-29s load up with bombs and fly to Japan. It was essentially one mission for the price of three, as, because of the dangers involved in each flight over the mountains, each trip was considered a combat mission credit for the crew. It was inefficient, but until airbases could be made closer to Japan, it was the only way, and the May made do with what he had. The B-29s bombed targets in Burma, Thailand, and Indonesia from their bases in India, before making the treacherous flights over the Himalayas in preparation for their first raid on Japan. The B-29s made the supply trips with only one lost plane, and by June 14, 1944, 83 B-29s had arrived at four bases around the Chinese city of Chengdu. LeMay and other high-ranking officers accompanied the superfortresses to Chengdu, but were ordered by Arnold not to fly in the raid itself. It was to be the first major air raid against Japan since the Doolittle Raid in 1942. The target? The Yawata Steelworks in the city of Kitakyushu, on the northwestern tip of Japan's southernmost home island, Kyushu. Yawata accounted for nearly a quarter of Japan's steel production, and if it could be taken out, would be a major blow to Japan's war industry. Scores of photographers and journalists swarmed to Chengdu to observe the raid, including eight photographers and six newspaper writers selected to fly on board the B-29s to directly observe the raid. On June 15th, the crews were briefed on the target. As no photographs were available, the staff used old maps from the 1920s and 1930s to show the crews where the steelworks were located. This would only be the first instance of such inadequate intelligence, as lack of aerial photographs and target data would plague B-29 raids on Japan for months to come. The raid was to take place at night in order to mitigate losses and to take advantage of the B-29's new radar bomb site, which did not rely on sunlight. At 4.16 p.m., the 83 superforts took off and made their way towards Japan. The B-29s did not fly in formation. Rather, they flew in a bomber stream in order to avoid collisions in the dark. They first flew over Japanese-occupied China until they hit the Yellow Sea, making landfall over Japan at around 11.45 p.m. At 12.38 a.m., the first B-29s arrived over Yawata. The Japanese had spotted the attackers on radar and had cut power to the city, blacking out the whole of Kitakyushu and Shimonoseki, as well as deploying smoke screens to further hamper visual bombing. The B-29's radar was unaffected, however, and 35 B-29s made radar bombing runs on the steelworks, with another 15 finding their mark visually through the smoke. The rest of the B-29s, unable to find their bearings with the inaccurate intel, bombed targets of opportunity instead, including the docks, some of the busiest in Japan. Japanese anti-aircraft defenses filled the sky with flak, but it was mostly ineffective in the dark. The Japanese also scrambled a fighter group to intercept, but only one was able to find a B-29 and shoot it down. That B-29 would be the only combat loss of the raid for the 20th Bomber Command. The remaining B-29s dropped their bombs and turned back towards China. A couple B-29s were forced to land at airfields farther east of Chengdu due to fuel leaks and damage, and two bombers crashed in China with loss of all on board. On board one of these two crashed B-29s was a reporter from Newsweek magazine, who was killed in the crash. One B-29 was destroyed on the ground by a Japanese strafing run the next day, but none of the crew were harmed. Total losses for the raid were 7 B-29s destroyed and 6 damaged, with 57 airmen and 1 journalist killed. While the raid was a huge morale booster, its results were mixed. Only half of the B-29s had been able to find the target, and the steelworks had barely been scratched and would be fully operational within a matter of weeks. However, it had proven that the B-29s could now begin taking the war to Japan, and LeMay intended to make full use of this new capability. From June through December 1944, LeMay's B-29s of the 20th Bomber Command bombed targets all throughout Asia, launching a number of missions against targets in Kyushu in the southern portions of Japan's largest home island, Honshu. However, even in June, it was apparent that bases closer to Japan and easier to supply were needed. And as LeMay's bombers struggled to operate out of China, hundreds of ships and tens of thousands of soldiers and marines were poised to invade a set of islands that provided just such a base. The Mariana Islands sit almost directly in the center of the Pacific Ocean, about 1,500 miles south of Japan. Air bases on these islands would put the whole of Japan within range of B-29s. The Navy had originally decided not to invade the Marianas, but Hap Arnold insisted that they be taken as bases for the B-29s. Pressured by Arnold from Washington, Admiral Chester Nimitz mustered his amphibious corps and the Pacific Fleet to take them. Three islands in particular, Saipan, Tinian, and Guam, were chosen, as they provided the best ground on which to build air bases. Saipan was invaded first on June 15, 1944, 
the same day as LeMay's first raid on Japan. The Marines landed under heavy fire from dug-in Japanese troops. The Japanese had dug a system of bunkers and trenches near the beach, as well as constructing a number of bunkers and caves in the hills above in which they placed their artillery. The Japanese fought ferociously, as they all knew that if they lost the island that their homes would come under attack. The Marines managed to secure a small beachhead under fire and soon began slowly expanding their hold on the island. They first advanced across the width of the island in an effort to cut the Japanese defense in two, isolating the southern part of the island from the north, destroying each one in detail. After a few days of hard fighting, the Marines had reached the eastern shore and began preparing to clear the Japanese from the southern part of the island. Shortly after the Marines had begun their drive across the island, they woke up one day to find the fleet supporting them had disappeared without a trace. The Marines cursed the Navy for abandoning them on the island, but the fleet had not abandoned them. Rather, it had gone out to sea to protect them. The Imperial Japanese Navy would not sit idly by as the islands that would put American air power within range of the homeland were taken. The full force of the Japanese fleet sallied out from Japan to try and drive away the American fleet and relieve Saipan's garrison. American submarines spotted the fleet leaving port, and the U.S. Pacific Fleet was ordered to intercept. The two forces met a few hundred miles west of Saipan in the Philippine Sea, and the opposing air groups of each fleet fought in the skies above the Pacific in the largest carrier air battle of the war. The Japanese pilots were inexperienced when compared to their American counterparts, however, and it soon was clear that the Americans were slaughtering the Japanese aviators. Soon American dive bombers and torpedo bombers tore into the Japanese fleet, sinking a number of Japanese ships including three aircraft carriers, striking a devastating blow to the Japanese fleet from which they would never fully recover. American fighters shot down around 600 Japanese aircraft and lost only 123 of their own in what became known as the Great Marianas Turkey Shoot. Soon thereafter, the U.S. fleet returned to Saipan with only one battleship damaged in the whole affair. Meanwhile, before the Marines could begin their assault on the southern half of Saipan, the Japanese preempted them, and the entirety of the southern garrison, between three and 5,000 men, sallied out and bonsai charged the American positions. The Marines opened fire with everything they had, but it could not stem the tide of over a thousand furious Japanese soldiers. The Japanese showed immense courage, charging into the face of certain death with nothing to gain except eternal recognition. The Japanese charge broke through the thin American line, overrunning multiple sectors. The Marines on the front line fought a desperate rearguard action to try and slow down the attack and buy time for a new line to form. One of the men fighting in the rearguard was Sergeant Thomas Baker. He had held his foxhole until he ran out of ammunition and was in the process of falling back when he was wounded by Japanese fire. One of his comrades tried dragging him back to an aid station, but was also wounded in the process. Yet another soldier attempted to help Baker, but Baker refused, not wanting to risk any further harm to his friends. He instead asked to be propped up against the tree and given a pistol with its eight remaining rounds. His comrades left him there and, the next morning, after the attack had been repulsed, came back and found him dead, surrounded by eight dead Japanese soldiers. The Japanese attack managed to reach the Marines' camps, but, as every Marine is first trained as a rifleman regardless of specialty, the Japanese found, to their surprise, cooks, medics, doctors, and clerks armed to the teeth ready to defend their camps. The Japanese attack slowly lost momentum until, finally, reinforcements were able to clear out the last attackers. After a few days of clearing out pockets of resistance, the South was declared secure. A couple weeks later, the Marines had managed to push the remaining defenders into a small pocket on the northern tip of Saipan. Instead of surrender, the Japanese ordered all of the civilians on the island Island to commit suicide rather than be captured. Marines watched in horror as Japanese soldiers forced mothers to toss their babies off the 100-foot-tall cliff that stretched along the northern coastline of Saipan before then jumping into the sea themselves. Thousands of civilians died in this way before the Marines, desperate to stop the bloodshed unfolding in front of them, managed to reach the sea. After Saipan was declared secure, the Marines captured Guam and Tinian soon thereafter. The Navy Seabees immediately went to work constructing airfields on the three islands. They built one on Saipan, two on Tinian, and two on Guam. Northfield, on Tinian, was the largest of the airfields, having four runways. At the time, Northfield and its surrounding facilities, once complete, made it the largest airport in the world and the biggest bomber base ever built. Arnold intended to move the entire B-29 force to the Marianas, but he wanted to also keep up constant pressure against Japan. In order to do this, Arnold created another bomber command within the 20th Air Force, 21st Bomber Command, and put it under the command of General Haywood Hansel, another veteran of the 8th Air Force. While LeMay bombed Japan from China, Hansel would begin moving his command to the Marianas in preparation for the main air assault against Japan. Hansel organized his command in Kansas, trained the crews on how to use the B-29 there, and then departed for the Marianas in early October. Hansel's men took the westward route, flying to the west coast, then Hawaii, before making the long-haul flight direct from Honolulu to Saipan. The first B-29 of the 73rd Bombardment Wing arrived at Isley Field on Saipan on October 12, 1944. Throughout October and early November, 
the B-29s attacked Japanese submarine bases on Truk Island and the airfield on Iwo Jima with mediocre results. The formations were scrappy, the weather poor, and the crews inexperienced. Hansel was running these missions in order to get his command ready for the big prize, Tokyo. Hansel wanted to bomb Tokyo as it would mark the first time Japan's capital had been bombed since the Doolittle Raid in 1942, and it would be a huge morale booster for his crews and the nation. In order to bomb Tokyo, he needed intelligence on Japanese industry in the area, and all he had at the time were almanacs and maps from the late 1920s, hardly adequate to find targets. In late October, a couple B-29s that had been modified for photo reconnaissance arrived on Saipan. Eager to get his hands on up-to-date information, Hansel authorized a recon mission over Tokyo on November 2, 1945. The weather over Japan was, and still is, usually very cloudy, and getting aerial photographs was usually very difficult because of those clouds. But as the recon B-29 arrived over Tokyo, the crew found clear skies and calm weather, perfect for photo taking. The B-29 spent 35 minutes over the city, taking hundreds of photographs. The photos would prove invaluable to the B-29 force for the remainder of the war. Hansel and his staff looked over the photographs and identified a number of targets. For the first mission he was planning, Hansel selected the Nakajima Aircraft Plant, a few miles west of downtown Tokyo. He briefed his crews, made sure his B-29s were ready for the job, and set the date for the operation as November 24th, 1944. This was the big one. 111 B-29s were made ready for combat. Every crew wanted to be one of the first over Tokyo. A film crew was flown in to record the historic mission, with cameras being set up up and down the runways and taxiways on Saipan, as well as being embedded with the crews on board the superforts. Hansel chose General Emmett O'Donnell to lead the mission, as Hansel himself was forbidden from flying in combat, just like LeMay. Anticipation filled the air as November 24th inched closer and closer. Before dawn on the 24th, the crews of the superforts woke up, got ready, and went to their briefings. The plan was to make landfall over Japan near Mount Fuji, then turn north towards Tokyo, flying over Yokosuka and Yokohama before reaching the Nakajima aircraft plant in Musashino, about 12 miles west of the Imperial Palace. The bombers would then turn eastward, fly over Tokyo's northern suburbs, and head back to sea before turning south for home. After the briefings, the crews piled onto jeeps and trucks and drove to their bombers, which at that moment were almost done being fueled up and loaded with bombs. They climbed aboard and began inspecting internal and external systems before the pilots finally gave the go-ahead to begin engine startup procedures. As the sun began peeking over the horizon, 111 superfortresses started up their engines. General O'Donnell, leading the mission from the B-29 named Dauntless Dottie, was first to taxi onto the runway, making sure to poke his head out the window of the bomber to receive a special blessing from the military priest standing along the taxiway. O'Donnell sat in the cockpit alongside Dauntless Dottie's usual pilot, none other than Robert K. Morgan, the man who had flown Memphis Bell, the first B-17 to complete its 25-mission tour over Europe in 1943. After the blessing, O'Donnell then continued down the taxiway and halted his plane at the end of the runway, ordered the engineer to give it full throttle, and stormed down the runway. The plane slowly gathered speed as the end of the runway and the cliff and ocean beyond crept closer and closer until, seemingly at the very last second, the plane loosed the shackles of the earth and took to the skies. O'Donnell's plane was followed by another one every 30 seconds, and in a matter of minutes, all 111 planes were airborne. They assembled into formation north of Saipan before carrying on toward Tokyo. The 1,500-mile journey took over seven hours, but as morning turned to afternoon, the crews of the lead plane spotted the unmistakable white peak of Mount Fuji. Using Mount Fuji as a guide, the B-29s turned north toward Mushashino and crossed from the ocean to land over the town of Fujisawa. From there, it was a straight run directly to Mushashino and the Nakajima plant. The Japanese weren't about to give up without a fight, though, and the full force of Japan's air defense came screaming in. Hundreds of puffs of black smoke filled the sky around the formation as AAA opened up on the bombers. Fighters came swooping in, strafing the formation, and B-29 gunners using their remotely controlled guns responded with a ferocious fire. The air battle intensified as the planes neared the Nakajima plant, which was defended by additional anti-aircraft guns. Fighters ducked, dived, and weaved throughout the formation. The sound of machine guns, flak bursts, right cyclone engines, and Japanese fighters flying by filled the air. As the B-29s neared the target, the pilots flipped a switch which gave the bombardier 
Cobra's Norton bombsight control of the plane in order to aim the bombs. Dauntless Dottie, as lead plane, would aim for the rest of the aircraft, as the bombardiers would look for its drop in order to time theirs. The bombardier looked through his bombsight and through the low layer of clouds as he zeroed in on his target. It was the first time he, or anyone else aboard the B-29s, had ever seen Tokyo. A couple miles out, and about a minute before they would be over the target, the bombardiers all flipped switches to open the bomb bay doors. Finally, through the clouds, he spotted it the Nakajima aircraft plane. He waited for his crosshairs to line up directly over the target before pulling the lever to release the bombs. Seeing the bombs falling from Dauntless Dottie, the rest of the formation let loose their bombs. Just over 2,500-pound general-purpose bombs fell from their bomb bays and towards the factory. Everyone watched as the factory and surrounding fields disappeared beneath clouds of dust and debris kicked up by the exploding bombs. Flying at 30,000 feet, they could not hear the explosions, but could see plainly enough that they had hit their target. They turned eastward out to sea before finally, after what seemed like an eternity, turning south for home. Seven hours later, the B-29s, low on fuel and in the dark, began landing on Saipan. All but two of the 111 planes that took off that morning made it back to Saipan. The first raid on Tokyo by B-29s was complete. The raid was hailed as a huge success by the media, as it was the first time Tokyo had been bombed since 1942, but in reality the damage was minimal. Photo reconnaissance flights a few days later revealed that only 24 bombs of the over 2,000 that had been dropped landed near the target, with the majority being tossed around the surrounding area by the high winds of the upper atmosphere. The factory would be back to 100% operational capacity in only a couple weeks. However, the raid had proved one thing for certain. As General of the Army Air Force's Hap Arnold put it in the film Target Tokyo, No part of the Japanese Empire is now out of our range. No war factory too remote to feel our bombs. The battle for Japan is now underway with full speed ahead. It was certainly time to go full speed ahead, as just a few weeks later, General Arnold, along with the rest of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, held a meeting in Washington to decide the future course of the war in the Pacific. The generals saw two routes to victory before them, the first being the B-29s. If LeMay and Hansel could bomb Japan into submission in a timely manner, the war could be won swiftly and with relatively few casualties on the Allied side. The second option, though, in case LeMay and Hansel could not finish the job in time, was an invasion of the Japanese home islands. The invasion would begin on the southernmost island of Kyushu, and Allied forces would secure that island before continuing on to the big prize, Honshu, Japan's largest and most populous island. The invasions would take months, if not years, to complete, and analysts estimated that over a million American, half a million Commonwealth, and countless millions more Japanese soldiers and civilians would die in such an invasion. Each square mile taken would be a mini Saipan, each city taken a witness to mass suicide. Each Japanese soldier encountered determined to fight to the death for his homeland. It would be the deadliest campaign in American history, tripling the American death toll from all of the war thus far. No one wanted to do it, but everyone knew that if the B-29s couldn't finish the job, that it had to be done. The Joint Chiefs of Staff set the tentative date for the invasion of Kyushu as November 1st, 1945. LeMay and the B-29s were now on the clock, with just under a year to finish the war, or else assist the deadliest and largest amphibious invasion in history. Could they do it? It was anyone's guess. That's it for this episode of LeMay's Inferno on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. Tune in next time as we discuss General MacArthur's triumphal return to the Philippines, the largest naval battle in history, and the Marine Corps' finest hour on a barren rock in the Pacific, Iwo Jima.